following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So I'm really going to do this, huh? <clears throat> All right, got my water, got my notes. Hello, family. I feel like I'm getting a sunburn up here. <laughs> it's okay, though. It's okay. I need to be able to read. So, uh, Anthony, last week... Anthony preached a marvelous message. Uh, in it, he mentioned false prophets and teachers, and one of the ways you can spot them sometimes is by their jet-setting lifestyle. Anybody notice that Anthony then got on a jet? <laughs> I went to Costa Rica. Down there in his hideout right now. Yeah. You know, what's really funny, though, is tomorrow morning, I'm getting on a jet and going to Palm Springs, so <laughs> I don't know what that's going to leave you all with. <laughs> we'll just go cycle through them until we find one that works, right? Okay, so my training is in philosophy and in history. I love to teach, right? Today, I'm going to try to preach, but at least they rhyme, right? So hopefully I'll have something for each of you. And, okay, I'm done with the corny jokes. <clears throat> so today, this is uh, the first installment of a series of sermons. There we go. Uh, God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. You may have heard of a sermon uh, almost 300 years ago now by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I'll just kind of switch the, the, the roles around here. Um, it occurred to me that that sermon, every sermon that has come in the last 2,000 years is only possible because uh, we uh, have a God who subjected himself to fall into the hands of angry sinners. So, um, so this is the first installment of that. So who knows? It might have two or three installments. It might have 50. We'll just see what happens. All right, so um, in colonial America, 1740s, um, Edwards had given this uh, sermon. And he was unable to finish it because people were so overwhelmed by it. He had to go down into the congregation and comfort them and all that. So um, they were figuratively melted where they sat. All right, so warriors. I want to tell you a story, almost 3,000 years in the making, so buckle up. I am a historian uh, and a philosopher, and so you're going to feel the brunt of that today. So during the years of Homeric Greece, we're talking hundreds of years before Socrates, right? The Greeks sought after this, um, this ideal. They called it arete, at least that's how I pronounce it. It meant excellence. So we're talking way back, Trojan War, kind of semi-mythical days of Achilles and Paris and Hector and all those guys. And what it led to was uh, endless fratricide throughout the Greek world. And part of arete was that uh, men especially were supposed to uh, engage in excessive violence, sexual license. Uh, it's all, it's all self-promotion aimed at glorification of self right, above others. To the pre-classical Greeks, this was excellence. This was arete, right? They believed that their gods were involved in the same sort of behavior. And 
that this, this arete, was the proper marriage between body and spirit, action and will, if you will. Admittedly, the emphasis was on the body and how to satisfy that, but it was, that was their marriage between body and spirit. And they thought, this is the recipe for the most awesome of all possible lives. And of course, you can imagine, it's actually a recipe for disaster. So hundreds of years later, right, we have a Peloponnesian War. It's going very badly. It's between Athens and Sparta, and the Spartans are beating up the Athens, or the Athenians. Socrates is in Athens, and he's walking around the city, and he's questioning the elders, especially, and the leaders of the city. He's criticizing them for their, um, their, just, their pursuit of this war and this pursuit of the old arete. Um, uh, he's just disgusted with them. Um, he had grown out of step with what arete uh, had been. And he proclaims at this time that the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm sure you've heard that term before. That comes right out of Socrates, right? Well, Athens had been humbled in this war, and they were ripe for his message. Though they did execute him, they thought about it a little later, and they were ripe for his message. He effectively institutes a new heroic ideal for Greece. It's a new form of arete. It's the examined life. Now think about how different that is from what went before, right? Um, as a side note, Socrates had gotten into the habit of expressing contempt for the Greek pantheon, the Greek gods, right? At the same time, he began referring to heaven and to God in the singular as if both were sources of goodness, which is really interesting for Socrates. So he did live in a city that juts right out into the middle of the Mediterranean, and so not only is it a, a source of goods and services coming and going, a big shipping empire, um, it's also a place where ideas are coming and going. And you see Paul later talking about the Athenians, right? Um, and all the, the ideas that they, uh, and the gods that they shared. Um, so Socrates was almost certainly exposed to notions of monotheism coming from the Jews, coming from the Persians, right? So he's almost certainly referring to all that. Okay, so now we have this humbled uh, Athens, and eventually uh, the entire Greek world is going to embrace Socrates' new form of arete, this examined life, this new type of hero. This is a life of the mind. Read that as life of the spirit, right? And it, in this life of the mind, the Greek world, they grow increasingly suspicious of the doings of the body. In fact, they look at things that are physical, things you can touch and pick up and taste and feel, and they begin to be very suspicious of all things physical. So the, the, the better place to be is in your mind to the Greeks, right? This is a divorce of the body and the spirit, and kind of a, I call it a proto or a pre-Gnosticism. Uh, in Gnosticism, it means more than this, but it means at least this, and that is... Um, a Gnostic will look at things that are physical and say, that's bad stuff, that's evil stuff. We need to escape all of that to a more spiritual realm. For Plato, it was the realm of the forms, right? Okay, um, so the body becomes the pathway to destruction, 
And, um, and this uh, is thought to be a way of um, being chastened by Athens' um, uh, experiences, right? We don't, we don't want to replay that, right? So the Greek world is ripe for Jesus to step into it, right? So God is preparing the stage. This new ideal gets spread across the Mediterranean as well as the Near and Middle East by Alexander the Great, all the way to India, actually. Uh, Alexander was not exactly Greek, but he thought of himself as Greek, and he loved Greek culture. He spread it all the way to India, art, architecture, philosophy, you name it. All of it becomes part and parcel of the world that Jesus is going to be born into. So think about this. We have these, this, this Greek world that is... Uh, engaging in a new type of heroic form, and that is the examined life. It's, it's perfectly ripe for Jesus to show up. Okay. So, into this Greek-saturated and Roman-controlled world, Jesus comes preaching the good news that the kingdom of the heavens is available here and now. This is the true marriage of body and spirit that the world desperately needed then, has needed ever since, and needs now. So for Socrates, freedom from the body, by that he meant his own death, meant the discovery of all truth which he had wondered about as a philosopher. For Jesus, by contrast, eternity was in session now. Truth was available now while in the body. And of course, forevermore, And Jesus himself is going to be the headmaster of a never-ending school of discipleship. So this is the world Jesus steps into. This is the world he's preaching into. All right. So let's take a look at this scripture. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So let that passage sink in. I hope we got it up there. Oh, let's get, uh, let's get the two of the Jews who had believed him. Let's move another slide if we can. Or have you got it in your notes? All right, well, <laughs> I'll just read it to you again. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm going to read it again. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So think about this. Knowledge, truth, freedom. That's what Jesus is preaching about, right? There are are no more important values in the Greek world at this time. The knowledge truth, and freedom. Jesus knows who he's talking to. He knows the culture he's in. And he's addressing their three highest values here. All right. So Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they had all made sure, right, that that these were the paramount values in the Greek world. So Jesus steps in and he just simply and beautifully and authoritatively addresses all three of them. So when are we free, according to Jesus? It's when we know the truth. Now, just stop and think about what a common-sense notion that is for a moment, right? If you don't know the truth, you are not free. Think about it in something mechanical, like uh, a car. 
if you don't know the truth about how cars work, you might try to use it as a submarine, right? And you're just not going to be free to get much of anywhere. It's, it's really that basic, right? When you know the truth, you're able to do all kinds of stuff in the context of knowing truth, right? So when do we know the truth, or when are we free? We're free when we know the truth. Then we can operate in the world as it really is, right? With an understanding of how it is. When do we know the truth? When we hold to his teaching. Ah, okay. What does it mean to hold to somebody's teaching? Does it mean to agree with them? It means at least that. Does it mean more than that? If you hold to somebody's teaching, you're doing the things they say to do, right? So, how do we do things? We do things with our bodies, with our spirits, right? Okay, this is a syllabus for life in the kingdom. If we fail this course on knowledge, freedom, and truth, we are going to end up or remain ignorant, enslaved, liars. You guys tracking? We could probably use some of that corny humor right now because it's feeling serious. <laughs> I didn't build any in here, so I'm just going to keep going with the serious stuff. Now, keep this in mind. <clears throat> this quote that we just had from Jesus. Do we have it? Oh, yes, good. Um, notice who he's speaking to. To the Jews who had believed him, right? Well, this is interesting because they took his last point to mean precisely that you're calling us ignorant, enslaved liars, right? I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit here. They, they decide they're going to kill him. The Jews who had believed him. This is, this is not necessarily the Pharisees or any of those folks. All right, so we ought not think, we ought not be too quick to think ourselves above violence toward Jesus, toward his message, toward his kingdom. Our behaviors and our attitudes reveal a lot about whether we are inflicting violence upon Jesus, his kingdom, his message. He is, after all, the God who gave himself into the hands of angry sinners, right? All right. Do you ever take offense at Jesus? Think carefully about that one. He is no respecter of our culture, right? He's not a promoter of it. He doesn't maintain it. We do have an empire of sorts that promotes and maintains that culture. Jesus is not a respecter of that. Don't impose that on him. Don't expect that of him. Corny joke. Ha 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 ha. Okay. Uh, and then reforming the Reformation. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That was great. That was much easier than actually coming up with one. <clears throat> All right. So about 500 years ago, Ish. So we've actually fast-forwarded several thousand years to get here, right? About 500 years ago, the church was subjected to a much-needed correction. However, 
we lost a deep and rich tradition of spiritual practice which had been commonplace both in the church and among God's people for centuries prior to this. Bodily practices, right, this stuff, in the form of spiritual disciplines, these involved effort, sometimes a great deal of effort, but they fell largely along the wayside in Protestant practice due to an association with abuses within the church. So I won't go deeply into the abuses. Most of you have heard about them. But the, the issue was this word metanoia. Hello, metanoia. The word translates to repent. And repentance involves uh, an unconditional surrender to God and for an exchange of the path one is on for the path toward God. Unfortunately, this word had been mistranslated over a thousand years earlier as do penance. And penance involves a voluntary self-punishment, uh, sometimes involving monetary payment for wrongs committed, right? So it had been a mistranslation, and now here it's being corrected. So think about that. 1,500 years of church history, and we have this mistranslated word. Oh, my goodness. Well, the Protestant world kind of aired as well. So something we need to embrace is that the church can be in error, and often is. Um, the abuses that followed uh, essentially amounted to working off one's sin and earning salvation. So in this Protestant reaction, anything that could be construed or misconstrued as earning one's salvation became highly suspect and essentially abandoned. The spiritual disciplines were largely jettisoned from Protestant practice, and one of the practical ramifications has been hints of Gnosticism kind of creeping in through a side window. Once again, the body was viewed as suspect, and the mind, spirit, viewed in stark contrast to that. There was no hope to be found in what could be done with and through the body. Interesting. Gnosticism is something that the Apostle John tries to deal with in his books, uh, church councils tried to deal with it, tried to get rid of it, this idea that, you know, the physical is evil and the spirit is good, and, and it goes way beyond that, but um, it's something that has never left the church. In fact, one of the things uh, the church is, I'm going to say this in air quotes, known for, because it really isn't us, but something we are suspected of, is our hatred of the body, our hatred of things that are pleasurable, right? And unfortunately, an awful lot of us are, are drawn to that kind of thinking, right? All right. So it quickly becomes commonplace to view salvation as simply agreeing to a belief in a set of propositions about God. But remember, even the demons believe, right? Certain propositions about God that we all believe. Hear this, church. We need to move well beyond agreement with demons. Do we not? We do. <laughs> a rough analogy, and this is a rough one. Could be a person who agrees that exercise is a good thing. They buy a gym membership, they go faithfully to the gym, or they sit down on the couch and drink a smoothie and watch people exercise, right? <laughs> and then die of a heart attack, right? That's kind of a rough analogy. Um, so here's another rough analogy. Even many out-of-shape people agree about what's healthy, yet they remain out of shape, <laughs> right? By the way, have you ever heard that, um, 
that phrase that we teach best what we need to learn most. If you hear anything like the beginnings of passion in my voice, <laughs> oh, this is because I needed to learn this. <laughs> yeah. All right. So think back again to our definition of metanoia. Unconditional surrender to God and an exchange of the path one is on for the path toward God. What happens on a path? We walk, right? We walk on a path. So we engage in life. If your body is carrying around your spirit, and in case you didn't know, it is, right? Think of your body as kind of a little battery pack, right, for your spirit. Um, it's going to be really hard not to involve your body in this unconditional surrender. It, it just can't be done. And if you have any lingering doubts about the goodness of physical things, you can put that to rest by reading the first chapter of your Bible, right? God pronounces all this physical stuff and then pronounces it. Yeah, in fact, after he creates Eve, then he, he ups the ante. What, how does he pronounce it then? Very good. Very good, right? So it's good. Physical is good. Your body is good, at least in its intended purpose. Okay. All right, so we have walked too close to this line in throughout church history of, of calling physical things and the body evil. Folks, just to get real serious for a moment, um, that's heresy territory. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? To say that physical things are evil, my body is evil, that is, that is heresy territory. Got you guys all shook up, didn't I? <laughs> all right. Well, let's find out where we are in our notes. <clears throat> oh, I've got a nice little... Yeah, I'm not even going to read that. I'll let you get the notes later. <laughs> so, we need to move from an appreciation of Christ to an appropriation of Christ. See the difference there? One, you're giving assent to a, a bunch of pro propositions about God. The other is you are engaging in those propositions and making them a part of you, or you're working with God to make them a part of you. So works of the flesh versus works of the spirit. In case you're getting really nervous and wondering, oh, where's Anthony? We need him right now. <laughs> Let's distinguish between the goodness of God's physical world, right, and the badness of works of the flesh, okay? So you might want to either underline this in your notes or make a note later or just find a way to memorize this, but works of the flesh are those works which are attempted out of your resources alone. That's works of the flesh. So whenever you see that in your Bible, just keep that kind of in the back of your mind you'll, and you'll begin to understand, okay, it's, 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 I'm working out of my resources alone, okay? Um, they're often intended to get you noticed, or to create an obligation from God back to you. Works of the flesh are about earning, right? They essentially say, God, do you see me? Right? You see this thing I'm doing for you? You see this? Right? All right, let's say another example. I have a student who desperately wants to please me, but does terrible on every assignment in spite of his very strenuous efforts. I notice this, and I offer to meet with him. I also offer the tutoring center, success coaching, and the writing center. He refuses all these resources, continues producing bad academic fruit, and will eventually fail the class, 
and submit a scathing review of me on Rate Your Professor. <laughs> because I did not see and appreciate his effort. That's a rough analogy for works of the flesh, okay? It's imperfect. Let's shed some light on works of the spirit by way of some further analogy and discussion. So uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote of being in his garden shed. We have a great slide for that. Uh, garden shed. Oh, uh-oh. Do we, do we miss that one? Flip around, see if you can find the, uh, the, sh the shaft of light one. Yeah, there we are. Okay. So C.S. Lewis once wrote of being in his garden shed, the door is closed and a shaft of light is pierced through, piercing through a crack in the door. And he's in there, right? He looks at the shaft of light and he sees little bits of dust floating around in the shaft, right? Um, and then he notices when he steps into the shaft of light, more like you see here, and he looks along the light, the dust particles, they're still there, but he can't see them. They're totally invisible. But now he's, his, it's changed everything. He sees a tree out through the crack in the door, and he sees the sun producing that light millions of miles away. Two very different experiences. Both are true, right? Both are true, okay? So uh, each one is diminished without the other as well. So now we should have that shaft of light with a microscope. Let's move to the next one. There it is, good. Okay, so these last several centuries, the sciences have caused a divorce of sorts between looking at, right, and looking along. So think of this as uh, the microscope, we're looking at something, and here we're looking along something, right? All right, so backed by the academy, modern science gives the authoritative nod to looking at as the superior or even the only way of knowing. This way of knowing had been neglected since the ancient Greeks, and the overreaction has been uh, extreme. This thinking has permeated our culture. It caused a great deal of rot right here in the church, right? Looking along has been all but abandoned in Western civilization and even within the church. So another quick example from Lewis to make sure we're clear on this point. Um, imagine two biologists, and they're trying to give uh, an account of what it means to be in love. And so both of them would be able to talk about biology and chemicals and all that kind of stuff that goes on with being in love, right? Let's say one of them has been in love before and the other has not. One clearly has an advantage over the other, yes? Yeah. That's the kind of advantage we have given up in the West. And we have largely given that up in the church, right? So let's regain some territory here. Um, the ancients, by contrast, they saw knowledge as thoroughly experiential. You didn't know something if you didn't experience it, right? So they would find it absurd, for example, today we will give out PhDs in philosophy for people being able to, I mean, doing a lot of work, I'm not discounting the work they do, but we'll, they'll give uh, PhDs out if you show that you can work very cleverly and accurately with philosophical concepts show what the implications are, et cetera, et cetera. The ancients would find that absurd. You mean to tell me you have a PhD in Gnosticism and you've never been a Gnostic? Are you kidding me? Really? You, you have a PhD in church history and you've never been, or church history, in 
church something and you've never been a Christian and you think you have knowledge? Really? Right? So if you weren't a Stoic or an Epicurean or a Christian, you didn't know these philosophies. You had at best looked at them. Right? They would say to know Christ is to look along Christianity. It's to do the things he told us to do. We have to move beyond appreciation of Christ to appropriation of Christ. Have you experienced Jesus? Has Jesus experienced you? I think that's an interesting question. We're talking about a relationship, right? It's, it's not all one way. In fact, it's, it's two ways. It's the way it is. Um, these questions attempt to get at what it means to know in the biblical sense. Think for a moment about a type of prayer we often engage in. And believe me, I'm not calling anybody out because every one of us does this. I probably do it more than you do, right? Think about this. God, please be with so-and-so. She really needs you right now. His uncle so-and-so had it. Please be with, right? We know God is there. We know God is with them. Maybe our prayer needs to be that we would be there. Think about that for a moment. I need to show up. God's there, right? Um, kind of an autopilot sort of thing. My body is there, but where's my spirit? Perhaps this or that particular prayer concern is an opportunity for Jesus and I to experience each other and spread the kingdom of God, right? So yeah, God be there. We know God's there. God help me to be there, right? To be there with you, to be the church. Right? All right. Might be good at this point to point out the difference between magic and faith. So faith, um, or rather magic, is an attempt to manipulate, right? You're looking at perceived powers. We want to get some kind of outcome and, uh, that we think is worthy of our goals, and it involves incantations and words and phrases. And if done correctly, I'll get the result I want. That's magic, right? Uh, faith is totally different. Faith is complete trust in someone. In the Christian context, it's faith in God, right? And it ultimately trusts that good will be the result regardless of the perceived outcome, right? That's faith. It's a huge, it's a, it's a huge gulf of difference. But I want to give you an example of where I saw these two trying to mix, and it was like oil and water. It just didn't work. I remember visiting uh, Ivan the Terrible's church in Russia, and uh, he really was terrible, but we won't get into, get into that. Just down the valley from this ancient building were two stones. So there's this valley, and there's a, there's a big stone over here and a big stone over here. And I saw these very um, serious parishioners coming out of the church, walking down the valley, and the women would go up to, the, to this side and sit on their stone, and the men would go up to sit on their stone. And the idea was that each stone would, would solve either male problems or female problems, right? That it would cure them. Here they are coming from prayers and going to navigate these other sources of power. Is that faith? Oh, my goodness. Um, moving on. We know our bodies are carrying our spirits around, so how do we show up, both body and spirit? Now, we should have, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, let's, let's see if we can find that one. Can we, 
flip through those slides and get to that Romans 12. Keep going. Uh, there we go. Good. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here we go. We're putting it all back together now. So the spiritual disciplines are based largely on this verse and the verse that immediately follows it. Um, their aim is to help us to be present. Isn't that interesting? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the goal of the di disciplines is to help us to be present. It's the same word. In a way that we were not before. Offering up our bodies in fasting, solitude, silence, and a multitude of other disciplines is a means of... Uh, is a, uh, help a means of offering up our bodies as living sacrifices. It breaks us free of the patterns of this world, the patterns we grew up in, the patterns that are normalized by our culture, by our empire, right? So the disciplines that we impose on our bodies help us to break free from those things. They're, uh, they're not a, let's see, let's move to the next uh, slide here. Do not be conformed. There we go. This is the very next verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. That's our spiritual act of worship. And now we're being told how not to be conformed to this world. Um, so the spiritual disciplines are not a means of earning. They are not earning. They are one of the places where God meets and transforms us where we come to know his will. They are the success center, the tutoring center, the gymnasium of the spirit, resources we dare not ignore, right? Let's go to the next one. Should be when Jesus saw him lying. There we go. It's one of my favorite scriptures, uh, though it reflects kind of badly, I think, on this poor guy. Uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and realized it, he had spent a long time in this condition, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. That sounds a lot to me like no. What about the rest of you all, right? Well, embodied apologetics is what the world is starving for today. Let's, yeah, there we go, good. Um, why would someone sign up for and pay for the gym but not exercise? Why would someone use their treadmill only to hang laundry? Guilty, <laughs> right? Think for a moment about the paralytic at the pool. Why on earth would someone not want to get well? That's what Jesus asks him, but his question or his response was really cagey, wasn't it? It wasn't a yes, it wasn't a no, though it sure smelled like a no. Perhaps after 38 years, he's found a pattern of life that suits him, right? Do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? Do I want to be well? Is something keeping you from the water? Anger, for example, could be a useful tool. You can use it to get your way. Maybe you don't want to give that up. Asking the same question seven different ways until my child finally caves in and tells me what I want to hear may be an effective pattern to manipulate my kid. But if my yes is a yes and my no is a no, I might lose the advantage I have over my child. 
Perhaps I don't really want to get into that water, especially after all these years. I'm like it nice and dry. So how do I do the things Jesus told me to do? How do I let my yes be a yes, my no be a no? How do I do good to those who persecute me? The spiritual disciplines are one of the places, one of the places where God meets us for the express purpose of transforming us more perfectly into his image. They are a place where I can ask, God, do I see you? As opposed to, God, do you see me? Quick examples. I keep an image, oh, I put it out there. I keep an image uh, of one of my daughters on my cell phone, and it's, it's a cute little kid image. Not that they're not still cute, but oh my goodness. I think the current one is Brienne. And every time I see it, when I look at this image, I'm reminded how precious um, other people are in the eyes of their parents, especially. So there could be a whole raft of inappropriate thoughts I might be tempted to have, and sometimes I'll pull my phone out just to look at the image, uh, but other times it's just kind of a, it's just, it's habitual. When I pull the thing out, I see the kid, and I think, oh yeah, other people really are precious to their parents, right? So that's a discipline for me, right? Um, Another one, I seek to let my yes be a yes and my no a no by asking real questions. The example about kids, that's a real one from Amy's in my life. Um, we used to ask our girls, for example, do you want to ask that little girl over to play? And we put it out there, it's a yes or no, right? And if they didn't answer the way we wanted, then we would reframe the question. And if we still didn't get the answer we want, we would reframe it again. And eventually the child would figure out, okay, There is a correct answer, and I'm not giving it. (laughs) Seriously, um, that's not letting my yes be a yes and my no be a no. If it's not a choice, I should be not framing it as a choice. We're going to have this little girl over to play. That's the way it's going to be, right? Oh, the frustration we could have saved for our poor kids, for our kids. I mean, not just for us, but for our kids. Um, All right. Um, One other example I want to give you. Set a guard over my mouth. Um, uh, I think that's from one of the Psalms. Set a guard over my my mouth, O Lord. And here you can actually, um, uh, with God's help, you know, pray about this and imagine a, a, a guard of sorts. And every word that starts percolating up out of your heart and wanting to find its way out of your out of your mouth, you could just decide. Okay, it has to stop and talk to this guard. Right? And has to answer some questions. So in my case, the, question, the questions might be, uh, does it add to the sum total of goodness in the world? Yes or no? Yes? Okay, move to the next question. Is it necessary? Yes or no? Okay. Move to the next question. Right? I have a series of questions, right, that I try this for an hour. Okay? Do that for an hour before you try to make it a lifetime pursuit. Right? And then try to do it for a day then try to do it for a week, and guess what starts to happen after a while? Really, you start to change. Oh my goodness, spiritual disciplines work. (laughs) They work, yeah? Okay, there are so far as I can gather an endless number of spiritual disciplines beyond the classics of fasting, praying, solitude, and silence. Sharing these with each other could prove to be a deep well of transformation here at CLG. Um, So, 
like to invite you guys to, to, um, to pursue that. Um, what does God get out of my spiritual transformation? He gets the person I become. Think about that. You become somebody he wants to spend an eternity with. Right? And what do you get out of it? Same thing. Right? You become outfitted more for eternity than you were before. Marvelous stuff. It's all good, all ways, for all time, and all eternity. Oh, I didn't even touch my water. So, uh, let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, that I survived that. Um, thank you for uh, this family. And uh, I ask you to... to, to to reach each of us uh, in exactly the way that you know we need to be reached. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.